Hey, I can't wait to get to this word. So we're going to turn to 1 John. If you brought a Bible with you, and as you're doing that, why don't you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your truth and your word to us. Um, God, as we, uh, as we band together now as the church, we want to, with one mind and one heart, uh, learn about you. And so, God, I pray, as I so often do, that anything that I share from your word that is rightly understood, rightly applied, that that would get through to these folks. Anything that I share, Lord, that through my fallenness is not rightly understood and rightly applied, I pray you would block their minds and hearts from that. And, Father, I pray that as we uh, look at your word now, that we might discern rightly what it says and apply it diligently to our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, believe it or not, John as we continue on in our study of 1 John, is going to go on to talk about love again. Love again. It's almost hard for me as a preacher because I feel like we just talked about love a couple of weeks ago, and then all of a sudden you turn the page into chapter 4, and he's talking about love again. And, uh, and, and so as I've been studying this passage over the last few weeks and even over the last few years, because it's one of the most significant passages on love, I've been asking myself, well, what is it that John is saying this time about love? And folks, one of the things that I think he's getting at here that you and I need to wrestle with and grasp onto today is that he's suggesting to us that the most difficult, the most risky, the most courageous thing in life is to love someone, but he adds a new twist to it, not just love someone in kind of a hallmark card kind of way, but love somebody as God loves us and has shown his love to us. And I believe when you see it in that light, folks, that this is hands down the most difficult, risky, and courageous enterprise in life to dare to love somebody as Jesus Christ has loved us. In fact, look up here on the screen. I think it's more difficult than climbing Mount Everest, and I think it's more risky than bungee jumping. That's what I would put before you this morning. I mean, think about it. To climb Mount Everest, for example, is a terribly difficult task. I don't think most people realize when somebody says, I climb Mount Everest, what they've attained. It's a 29,000-foot mountain in which there have been only 1,700 successful climbs since the first person who did it in 1953. About 175 people, just about 10% of those who attempt to climb Mount Everest, die. So if somebody told you that you had a 10% chance of dying in the endeavor you're about to do right now, I don't think most of us would want to do it. But that's Everest. It's a very difficult mountain to climb. It takes approximately two months from the time that you land in Kathmandu until you can reach the summit. Two months. During that time, for a team of 10 climbers, it requires four guides, eight high-altitude Sherpas who carry all the packs and equipment, four cooks, four helpers, just to get the 20,000 pounds of equipment, food, fuel, and oxygen tanks to the base camp of 18,000 feet. From here, it requires 10 climbers to load 60 yaks to take 10 to 15,000 pounds to the advanced base camp at 21,400 feet. And now, with only just about three or four camps between you and the summit, climbers will encounter consistent blinding snow, 50 mile per hour winds, huge crevices that can only be crossed by horizontal ladders, and steep vertical ridges that in some places go over a mile deep. Can you imagine? The average climber is going to lose 10 to 25 pounds while climbing Everest, consuming more or burning off more calories each day than they could possibly consume. And the preparation before all of this has taken you about a year of running, a year of swimming, a year of climbing, five days a week, with a cost all told of about $25,000 per person on average to climb Everest. 
I mean, no matter how you slice it, it is one of the most difficult physical tasks this side of heaven. And yet, I would argue that based on what we're going to look at this morning in 1 John, that loving another person the way that God calls us to love another person makes climbing Mount Everest look like hiking up Camelback Mountain. It's true. I think we're going to see that once we understand what God calls us to do in loving others, it is a huge task. And loving others, by the way, is a lot more risky than most of us think as well. It's more risky. In fact, it's more risky than bungee jumping. Do you all know what bungee jumping is? Like, I think I lost the first service on this one, but I think you guys may be a little bit more younger. You understand bungee jumping, right? It's where you jump off a mountain or something like that, and you got this big old rubber band that kind of pulls you back from hitting the ground and pulls you up again. I mean, bungee jumping, I don't care who you are, is an insane and risky sport. I mean, between the three integral phases of bungee jumping, the free fall, the fast deceleration, and then the sudden upward movement, numerous and serious injuries have been reported that like the most conservative doctors would warn you not to engage in this sport. I mean, everything from cord burns to severe asphyxia to subinternal brain hemorrhaging to spinal soft tissue damage to paralysis to death have all been reported in association with free falling dozens, if not hundreds, of feet, only to be sprung back up toward the sky at the last moment. And yet, as risky as bungee jumping is, I would submit to you that loving others, and I mean truly loving others in the way that God has loved you, makes jump, bungee jumping look like skipping rope. It's true. Uh, love is difficult, risky, and courageous all at the same time. And, and, and as we're going to see this morning, it's not for the faint-hearted. And though it's what God calls us to do, it's what he's wired us to do, and as we're going to see in the end, it's even what John is going to argue completes us as followers of Jesus. It's not an easy task. And the reason that I'm convinced of this is because of what John tells us in the passage that we're going to look at this morning. So let's read it. If you brought a Bible with you, I want you to open up to 1 John chapter 4, beginning at verse 7. 1 John chapter 4, beginning at verse 7. Way at the end of your Bible, the epistle of 1 John. And I'm going to read through verse 21. If you didn't bring a Bible, you can look up here on the screen. You can follow along as I read. But check out what he says about love. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son, Jesus, to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he is God. So we have come to know, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because he is, so also we are in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. 
We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he does not, for he who does not love his brother whom he cannot see, cannot love God, or who he can't see, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And so here's our main point this morning, folks. Here's the main thing I need you to grab on those very long verses there in 1 John 4. Look up here on the screen, and that's this. And that is that the most courageous thing in life, then, is to love someone, but not just love someone the way that we're told by our world today to love, but to love someone with the same kind of love that God has and shows. I'm telling you, this is what's going to separate the men from the boys, the women from the gals, when it comes to who is a follower of Jesus and who is just playing games, John says. And that is, can we and dare we love each other in the way that God has loved us? Now, to help us all see and understand the profundity of what John is sharing with us here, on your outline this morning, I put a little chart that I believe best communicates the flow and logic of John's argument. And so notice with me that there are three components of it that are kind of a circle, if you will, because one leads to the other, but then it completes the process and it starts all over again. And the first of the three things in John's circle here is simply this, that God has loved us and he still does. God has loved you and me, and John makes it clear that that love is ongoing. So look at what he says in verses 8 through 10 of 1 John 4. He says, God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So, notice how it all begins there in verse 8 by telling us that God is love. That's what theologians call a statement of being. It's not an action word, it's just a statement of being. God, in his core essence, is love. If you were to peel away the onion of who God is and get down to the core of who God is, John is saying that in his character, in his being, at his core, he is complete and perfect love. That is God. But then John goes on to say that God's love is not just some static thing, kind of like grass that remains dormant in winter. No, it's been manifested among us. Do you see that there in verse 9? He says his love has been manifested among us. Or as the NIV says, God has showed us his love. Or as the New Revised Standard Version puts it, God has revealed his love. It's all the same thing. God's love is contained in who he is, but he's decided to show it to us, to reveal it to us, to manifest it to us. And how has he done that? One word. One word that John uses three times there in verses 9 through 10, and it's the little and easy to gloss over word, sent. It's the word sent. Twice repeated in verse 9, then again in verse 10, it says that God showed his love by sending Jesus to this earth. Don't miss this, folks. The almighty God of the universe, complete and perfect and self-satisfied in who he is in the Trinity, sent Jesus, the perfect expression of God's love, to you and to me. And John's going to explode this here in a minute with some words that we don't use very often, words like propitiation, to help us fully understand this love. But just pause here right now and realize that God sent Jesus in response to this love that he has for us. 
Theologians of Bible experts point out at this point in the text that there are two dimensions being talked about here, two contrasting dimensions that are then linked together. The first dimension is the perfect and, and, and holy dimension of heaven, where God resides, where the Trinity resides, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. you got heaven, perfect, beautiful, great place to be. The second dimension being talked about here is obviously the dimension of earth. Our world, our fallen world that's in rebellion to God. And John links the two together here and he says, God who is in heaven sent Jesus into this mess of ours. And he's saying, in that is love. As one Bible expert puts it, he says, and I quote, Jesus is the visible demonstration of God's hidden love manifest to us. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop with the fact that God in his essence is love. It doesn't stop with the fact that he decided to show us his love. But in showing us his love, Jesus then demonstrated two very profound and arguable things. And they're both bound up in that phrase to be the propitiation for our sins. And they are self-sacrifice and something that benefits other people. We learned this a couple of weeks ago. The core of John's definition of what it means to love based on who Jesus is and what he has done are going to be, give me a clicker, guys, self-sacrifice and self-sacrifice that benefits another person or benefits others. So you see, folks, when it says that Jesus was a propitiation for our sins, what does that mean? That word literally means an atoning sacrifice. It carries with it the idea to appease somebody's anger by providing something in place of it. We've all had that experience. When we were little gals and guys and we would tick off our parents and they were very mad at us, we'd do certain things to try to appease them, right? We might apologize. We might repent and try to make up for the wrong that we committed. We might plead, you know, mercy or what have you. I mean, lots of things we did as kids to try to put something in place of our parents' anger so that their anger would be turned into forgiveness and into joy. And as adults, we do the same thing. And what John is saying is that with God, it's no different. That because of our sin, it has separated us from Him. There's anger that He has toward this world that He has made. He is grieved over that. And he's telling us that the reason that Jesus was sent from this safe, secure place of heaven into our mess, the reason that this powerful manifestation of God was given in Jesus was so that through his self-sacrifice, his death, that it would do nothing but benefit others by appeasing God's anger and wrath so that we might know and experience the love of God. That's rich stuff. That when he says that he came as a propitiation for our sins, it's telling us here that God, who was once mad, now is forgiving. That God, who was once distanced from us, has now been brought close to us because of what Jesus has done. And John is saying, look at that, folks. That's love. And the components of it are self-sacrifice that benefits another person. And so at the end of the day, folks, what we learn from this is that real love from a biblical standpoint, maybe you're starting to see, is the kind of love that takes tremendous courage and tremendous risk and tremendous sacrifice. I mean, when the Bible says that you and I need to love now like Jesus loves, if we're getting this at all, we go, whoa, wait a minute. I mean, it's one thing for him to let me off the hook. It's one thing for him to forgive me with such an outlandish kind of love, but you're telling me that that I need to to love others now with the same kind of love? That might mean that I need to forgive people when 
I'm not obligated to forgive them. It might mean that I need to listen when they don't deserve to be listened to. It might mean that I need to give to them when nobody else wants to give to them. It might mean that I have to spend time with them when even their own mothers don't want to spend time with them. I I mean, this self-sacrifice benefit type thing changes the whole definition of love. And it's true. Now you're getting it. Jesus tried to help us see this in Luke chapter 6, verse 32, when he said this. He said, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And look at verse 35. He says, but love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend. Expect nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High. You know, the problem with a passage like this is that when we read it, we kind of gloss over that, and we say, why? He obviously didn't mean it literally. I mean, he didn't really mean that I'm supposed to forgive debts. He didn't really mean that I'm supposed to lend and not expecting something in return. It's just kind of a quaint, beautiful little word picture on how I'm supposed to treat others, right? No! Not at all! I mean, he meant it. We learned this a couple weeks ago, that the way we interpret the Word of God is we interpret it literally unless an allegory is demanded by the context. And as far as I see it, there's no allegory in any of this. This is the core definition of love, folks. It's what John's repeating to us here. That God has loved us so much and that his love is defined by self-sacrifice. Jesus coming into our mess. Self-sacrifice. Jesus going to the cross for our sins. And then something that benefits others. The forgiveness that we now have in being brought back to God. Francis Chan, who's a great pastor over in Simi Valley, California, one of the most downloaded pastors in the States right now. About 40,000 people download his sermons every week. Um, And he just quit, by the way, which is a real bummer, but he feels like God's calling him on to something else. But he's been there for 20 years, so he got 20 years of sermons to download. Wrote a book a couple years ago called Crazy Love. Maybe some of you read it. Just a great book. And the book is basically talking about what we're talking about here today, that once you get how crazy and absurd God's love is, you're either going to be repelled by it or you're going to be so changed by it that your life will no longer ever be the same. And part of what he's arguing here in his book, Crazy Love, is exactly what John's trying to get us to see, that love by its very nature is a self-sacrificing God behind it that's done nothing but benefit us. And ergo, as we're going to see in a minute, our love needs to mirror the same. He tells a story in his book toward the end of it about the Robinson family, a family in his church, And what they do every Christmas day with their young, burgeoning family. Listen to his story. He says, This family of five with three kids under the age of ten chooses to celebrate the birth of Christ in a unique way. On Christmas mornings, instead of focusing on the presents under the tree, they make pancakes, brew an urn of coffee, and head downtown. Once there, they load the coffee and the food into the back of a red wagon. Then, with the eager help of their three-year-old, they pull the wagon around the mostly empty streets in search of homeless folks to offer a warm and filling breakfast on Christmas morning. Jan says all three of the Robinson kids look forward to this time of giving a little bit of the tangible love of God to people who otherwise would have been cold and probably without breakfast. And then he asks, can you think of a better way to start the holiday that celebrates the God who is love? Can you? You can't. But what's that family doing? They're teaching their kids what true love is. That on a morning when most families, and we don't say this to produce guilt, but let's just be honest, on a morning where most families are opening presents and sipping hot chocolate or doing whatever you do, they're out benefiting others in a self-sacrificing way. 
If you can grab onto that, and all of us can, that is love. That's how much and in what ways God has loved you and me. And once we begin to get this, once it just starts to get a little bit more than skin deep, then John goes on in this chapter to give us the second thing in our progression here, and it's simply this, that we are now to love one another, but here's the key, in the same way that God has loved us. Uh, Folks, tune into this this morning. You know, the church today, rightly so, talks about love all the time, and I'm a big fan of it, obviously. But one of the problems we have in talking about love is that we don't talk about biblical love. We talk about Hallmark card love, right? We talk about Harlequin romance love. We talk about Oprah love. I mean, we talk about all these different definitions of love, which are good and fine, rooted in our culture today. But you need to know that when the biblical writers talk to us about love, they raise the bar. The stakes are a lot higher. And they always tell us that if we're going to talk about love and if we're ever to engage in it, we engage in love in the way that God has loved us. That's the value. So look again at verses 7 through 8 and verse 11, and you will see what I mean. It says in verses 7 through 8, Beloved, let us love one another. Now here's the key. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Are you seeing the link here? Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Then skip down to verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, the primary thing that I want you to see here, folks, is that once you grasp the big picture of what God is doing saying here, you realize that his call to love other people is what I would call a diverted love. It's a diverted kind of love. And you're saying, what's a diverted love? You see, it all starts with God loving us first, as we have seen, this sending, manifesting, self-sacrificing, benefiting others kind of love. And yet, isn't it interesting that instead of John saying that we are simply to reciprocate this love, in other words, the fact that God loves us, we need to love him back, which we know we are to do because this would be the logical response to anybody loving you, John says in verse 11 that since God so loved us that our response is not just to love him back but to divert this love to others around us. Very fascinating kind of thinking. Very foreign kind of thinking. I mean, most of you don't say to your spouse, hey, you know what, I love you so much. Now, hey, go pass that love on to somebody else today. We don't function like that. I mean, Trent, you didn't say that to your wife, Barb, this morning. You didn't say, hey, Barb, I love you so much. Now go love somebody at church. I mean, we don't think like that. But that's exactly what John is saying to us about God. He's saying, God loves you so much. Now go dig a trench so that somebody else can have that flowing water of God's love in their lives. It's a diverted kind of love. And that's the word picture here, by the way. The fact that God has dug a canal, an aqueduct, into our lives through Jesus, and now his love flows into our lives. You don't always know it. You don't always experience it. But as you hang in there with him, as you you persevere, you're going to experience his goodness and his grace and his faithfulness and his love. And most of us have stories every week about that. And what he's saying now that God has dug that trench into your life, go dig a trench into somebody else's life. Dig a trench into your neighbor's life. Dig a trench into your kid's life. Dig a trench into a family member's life. Dig a trench into a co-worker's life. And the less deserving they are, the better. 
because you were pretty undeserving yourself. And so as you dig a trench into their lives, start the flow of the love of God into their life through you, and just maybe they'll start to experience God's love directly from himself as well. It's just that once you get this, folks, once you understand what John is saying, you go, let me get this straight. I'm to love other people in the same way that you love me, God? Do you have any idea, God, what you're asking me to do? I mean, if people only knew, God, what I was really like, and very few people do, and if they only knew what a tall task it was for you to love me, how in the world could you ask me now to love others like that? Like, only you can love like that. And God comes along and says, no, you don't understand. You now have the supernatural love of God through the Holy Spirit flowing in and through your veins. You've been crucified with Christ. You no longer live, but Christ lives in you. And you now have the capacity to love like I love. It's just that once you get that, you go, whoa, this changes everything. The game has changed now. And I don't know if I could do that. That is so hard. Do you all see why I'm saying? It'd be easier to climb Mount Everest than to do that. It'd be easier to bungee jump than to do that. I mean, to love somebody like that? That's why Francis Chan calls it crazy love, because people just don't do that. But John is saying, that's what you need to do. Let me bring this home to you in a way that might help us really understand what a tall order this is, but as we'll see in a second here, we're going to wrap up on a glorious note how profound this can be for us. Um, I obviously rub shoulders a lot with men. The elders in this church are men. A lot of our staff are men. Uh, I'm in a men's group every week in which I share my life and they share their life with me. And I lead a men's Bible study in the marketplace, so my life has a lot of men in it. And, um, and one of the things I've noticed among men is that we got our list of things that we struggle with. And they're all pretty, like, cowy, just placid things that we think are really hard, but at the end of the day, they're really not all that hard. So, for instance, men will say, I struggle with overwork. You ever found a man saying that? Struggle with overwork. I'm a, I'm a workaholic. You know, I don't know if a man's usually confessing that when he says that or if he's bragging, but we say I'm a workaholic. Uh, men also tend to struggle with getting lost in their hobbies. Now, no nudging your husband here, but we tend to get lost in our hobbies, right? Whether it's cars or golf or whatever it is, we tend to get lost in our hobbies, and we obsess. I don't know if you women ever noticed, but we obsess every once in a while with our hobbies. And then men, thirdly, tend to struggle with sports, right? And women too, but we, we tend to struggle with, uh, again, maybe too much sports. So when I deal with men, we're constantly talking about how not to overwork and how not to get too lost in our hobbies and how to, you know, keep sports within, you know, the, the sane realm that they need to be in. And uh, we tend to talk all about, about those struggles. And yet, I'm not sure we're digging deep enough, men, if we really say that those things are our core battles. Because I don't think those are our core battles. I think what John is saying to you and me, men, is that it's a lot more difficult for you to truly love your spouse, for you to truly pour into your kid, for you to truly open up to another man in an accountability context than it is to struggle with sports, hobbies, or work. In other words, we hide behind these wonderful things in which, you know, yeah, I struggle with work and hobbies and sports and all that. And it's like John's saying, get off it. And they'll say, what are you talking about? Those things are child's play compared to the core battle, men, that we have. And that's how do we really understand and love our wives. 
I was driving down the road just the other day with Kim. I was driving her back from the airport, and she joked about this, but it was true. She, I was on the phone with somebody as I just picked her up, and I said, hey, I got to go. Kim is here right now. And, you know, I hung up the phone, and I said, yeah, dealing with a problem with the church. I said, you know, I'm thankful that God's gifted me in leadership and teaching because I think, you know, these are surmountable problems, and I think I know how we need to respond, you know, to this one. And I said, I, I feel pretty good at that. And she said, well, that's good because you're really not good at loving women. She just come off a trip. I'm like, how could I have done anything wrong? You haven't been with me for the last five days. You know, but, but that's, just, that's just off the top of her head all the time, you know, because it's true. It's true. I, I mean, I'm good at work, and I'm good at, at sports, and I'm good at hobbies. I'm not good at intimately loving the people closest around me. How about you? I'm not good at sharing my heart. I, I'm not really good at, at learning to selflessly sacrifice myself for another person in such a way that doesn't benefit me, but benefits them. That's why John is saying, man, this is walk courageously time for you and me when it comes to getting the most out of our walk. Because you see, here's where all this leads, folks. The greatest tragedy of all is that when you and I allow fear, we don't have time to look at this point, but John talks about the fact that keeps us from loving is fear. When we allow fear uh, to rob us of courage when it comes to loving in the way that God has intended, we miss out on the amazing benefits, both spiritually and relationally, that God has for us. In other words, putting it positively, here's what happens when you and I can learn to love one another as God loves us. Give us another click here, guys. And that is that God's love then becomes more, if not complete, in us. His love becomes complete, John's going to argue, in us. Are you starting to see the circle here? God loves us, we divert this love to others, and then something happens in us in which his love come, becomes complete. So look at what he says there. Look one last time at 1 John this morning, and look at what he says in verses 12 and 16. This is profound stuff. He says, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. Fascinating statement. If we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. And then look at verse 16. He says, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. Now, there's a lot of stuff going on in these two verses here. But just notice three words there in which if I'm reading it right, everything else seems to hinge around. And those three words are love, live, and complete. Love, live, and complete. And as you're thinking about those words, here's what John is arguing. He's saying that all of us want to experience God. We want to behold Him. We want to see Him. We want to have some kind of visceral, experiential encounter with God that will cement finally in our hearts and our minds that He is real and that He's active in our lives. That's John's starting point. Can you guys agree with that? It's true. I haven't met a human being yet who doesn't want to experience God on a physical, emotional level. And yet the problem is, is that John rightly says that no one has actually ever visibly seen the Father. And the reason is, is because John's read the Old Testament. He knows that in Exodus 33, verse 20, it says that no man can literally, and I quote, see God and live. That's the reality. If you and I were to see God today in his glory and his fullness, we would be blown away literally. You cannot be in the presence of an omnipotent, omniscient, all-wise, all-powerful God and live, the Bible says. 
And yet, John goes on to say that given these two realities, we want to experience God, but we can't be in his presence yet, because that comes after we die. He says, goes on to say, that if, however, we love others with the same kind of outlandish love that God has loved us with, this sending, manifesting, sacrificial, benefiting others kind of love, then God is literally going to take up residence in our souls, begin to live more fully in us, and when this happens, we're going to start to feel more alive, more complete, complete as his love fills us up. And before you know it, his love has taken a backdoor into our hearts and our minds. Why? Because we diverted it to other people, and now... And only now we are experiencing joy, peace, fulfillment, and even completeness in Christ. In other words, he's saying, you learn to love others like this, and guess what? That's the closest, most profound experience you're going to have of God, this side of heaven. Whoa. We think the most profound experience we can have as believers is in our quiet time. Well, it's good to have quiet times. You'll have experiences of quiet times. God is saying, quiet time, yes, love others even more. We tend to think that we're going to have the most visceral experience with God through worship. When we're raising our hands and giving our heart and singing our favorite worship song, God says, yeah, that'll give you experience of me, and that's good and fine, but love others, look out. We think we're going to have the most wonderful experience of God when we serve like crazy, you know, and we're using our gifts and going leadership and teaching and helps and kindness and mercy and all these, and God's saying, yeah, that's good to do, but, but you learn to love others on a relational level. Pour into the most unloving people in your life with love? Look out. I'm going to enter into that and blow you away with a sense of my presence. Some of you are saying, Jamie, is this really true? It is true. There was an entire church back in the first century, an entire church that was really into spiritual gifts. They were really into worship experiences. They were really into experiencing God's presence. And Paul wrote them a letter and said, you guys don't get it. As good and right as all of those things are, if you miss out on what it means to experience God's love and to pass it on to others, you're nothing. Look at 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 4. This is unmistakable. You all heard this passage. Now you're going to hear it in the context of what it was meant to be written. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but do have not love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am, say it together with me, nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor and I deliver my body to be burned but do have not love, it profits me nothing. And then he goes on to list all those wonderful, self-sacrificing, benefiting others kinds of traits of love. He says love is patient, love is kind, is not rude, is not self-seeking, it always seeks the best. He goes on to list all what love is. That's love, folks. And the reality is, is that without it, even given all of our other experiences this side of heaven, knowledge, fighting the culture wars, worshiping him like he's coming back tomorrow, you do all that stuff but have not love. He says, guess what? You just missed the boat. You will not be complete in your experience of God. The deepest experience of God comes relationally with him and with others. So now you might be, be able to see why I say that love at the end of the day is so incredibly hard and incredibly risky, but it also carries the benefits of truly being able to know and experience Him. I want to close with one story, and then we're going to be done. I think I've told you guys this story before. I can never remember what stories I've told you or not, but 
this is one that bears repeating based upon, well, it was my first experience of ever learning how to love like God wants me to love, and it challenges me to this day. The year was 1983. I told the first service, 82. I got a little confused. It was 1983. I'd been a Christian just about one or two years. Picture a really fired up, really young, really green, growing in knowledge, but all that not, not that much knowledgeable uh, kind of kid who's just on fire for Jesus. That was me. I was a freshman in college, and I'd come home that summer to Chagrin Falls, my hometown, in order to uh, get a summer job and work. And I got a summer job two towns over in a town called Chesterland at Turney's Hardware, which is a big Ace Hardware store there in Chesterland. And I was a stock boy. I tell my kids all the time, you have to start at the lowest level, and when you're in college just trying to eke by, that's what you did back then. Maybe that's what you do now. But I was a stock boy. And I stocked shelves, I unloaded trucks, I cleaned bathrooms, I swept floors. That's what I did all summer to earn money for school. And there were three bosses, three brothers that owned this hardware store, and two of them liked me, but they weren't the ones really managing the store. They were kind of silent partners. The guy that managed the store, he didn't like me at all. To this day, I don't know why he didn't like me. I think I'm a rather likable guy, but for some reason, he didn't like me at all. And uh, he really took an, an aversion to my faith. He was definitely not a Christian, and I was. And I was pretty vocal about my faith back then and even today, but um, for some reason, he didn't like it at all. And I started to experience a level of persecution that I'm telling you I've never experienced to this day. I mean, we don't get persecuted much here in the western part of the world, but back then in the early 1980s, before the EEOC and other things were around and really, you know, holding people to the fire and how you treat employees, I got persecuted. He nicknamed me Gamey right from the start. Uh, my name's Jamie. He thought it was funny to call me Gamey. So he would get on the PA and he'd say, gamey, the floors need done, gamey, the bathroom needs clean, gamey, the truck needs emptied, and that's what he called me all summer long in front of everybody. One day when I was unloading the trucks, I noticed that the truck driver for like the third or fourth time in a row was looking at me kind of goofy and smiling and shaking his head, and I said to my boss later, I said, what did you tell that guy? He said, I told him you were gay. And he said, you know, these guys hate gays, and so they hate you. I thought, well, that's not a nice thing to do. Uh, one day I just cleaned the bathrooms at the hardware store there, and about an hour later he got on the PA and he said, Gamey, the bathrooms need cleaned again. And I uh, said, how could the bathrooms get so dirty? And I went over and the bathrooms were absolutely filthy. And I realized he had gone and filthied the bathrooms just so I'd have to clean them again. And this went on and on all summer long. He would belittle me as I would walk by. He would tell other people untrue things about me. And his level of persecution, again, on, on a verbal level I'd never experienced in my life. Uh, the crux of it came when one day I was driving home in my truck, and uh, just before I'd gotten into my truck, I, I didn't realize at the time, but my boss had put a big, huge sign on the tailgate of my truck that said, and I don't mean to be offensive to some of you, this is what happened, it just said F-A-G on it. And he put that on my truck. And I drove through town with that on there. And I got home and I saw that and I thought, this, this guy's just not going to stop. Uh, let me ask you, if that was to happen to you today, how, how would you respond to that? I mean, 30 years later, evangelicalism in America, Christianity, has gotten a bit more sophisticated. We demand our rights a lot more often. And so if that happened today, even if it happened to me, I probably would have put up a little bit of a fight. I might have said, you know, hey, you can't treat me like that. This is a just society that's just caused you. know, you're not going to get away with doing that. But you see, the only problem was I was a brand new Christian. And so I was reading the Bible very fresh for the very first time in my life. And so as all that was going on in my life from him, I, um, I was reading passages like this. Now go figure. I was reading passages out of Matthew 5 that said, Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. 
Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is in heaven is great, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then I'd read, Paul the Apostle say, it's mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. And then I'd read in Luke 6, where Jesus would say, love your enemies, do good to them, bless those who persecute you. And then I'd read about Jesus on the cross and how they hurled insults at him, but he retaliated not. Are you starting to see, folks, I, I didn't know any better. Uh, blame me for just believing the Bible, but I'd read the Bible and I'd go, I don't think my response should be to somehow fight for my rights. I thought, no, early on that summer, I thought, I think my response needs to be to love this man to death, to do everything I could just to love him as my enemy and see what God does. And so all summer long, I never demanded my rights. I never told on him. I never brought an EEOC complaint against him or anything like this. I just, I just loved him. And it drove him crazy. I remember one time I read for the very first time that, that saying of Jesus where he said that they can kill the body, but they can't touch your soul. And I was so excited about that passage that I ran in and I told my boss about it. And I said to him, I said, I just got to tell you right now, you can do whatever you want to me in my body. <laughs> you can't touch my soul. I said, you can't touch me, man. I said, bring it on. Do all you want. Maybe this is what started. But I said, bring it on. I said, do all you want to. I said, I I'm telling you, you can't tap my joy. You can't get at it. It's bound up in Christ. And all summer long, I lived like that. I tell you, I wish I could say to you that it had a happy ending, that he repented in sackcloth and ashes at the end of the summer. But that's not what happened. To this day, I'm telling you, I've checked up on him. He's pretty much the same guy. It's pathetic and it's sad. But two things happened by the end of the summer that I look back on and say, only God. The first thing that happened is that I did indeed have joy. I did indeed realize that they can do whatever they want to you physically. They can't touch your soul. And that through me digging deep and realizing that as a response of love, I experienced God for the first time like I never thought I would. And the second thing that happened is the inspiration it gave to others. Little did I know all summer long, all the cash register ladies were watching all of this. They tended to be nosy, bitty, busybodies anyways. And so they were seeing all of this go on, and they were talking about it all summer long. Did you see what he did to Jamie? Did you see what he did to Jamie? Jamie didn't do this. Jamie didn't do that. And at the end of the summer, they chipped in, and they had a plaque made for me. And the plaque said on it just three words, love your enemies. And as I received that plaque, I thought, they got it. They got the message. And it drew them closer, some of them for the first time, because I was very vocal about my faith, to Jesus. I leave you with this thought, and it's a confession, but I think it's a challenge before us. That was 30 years ago. I sometimes wonder what my response would be today if the same thing happened to me. You see, I'm more sophisticated. I know the Bible now more, and I know all the passages on justice too. And, uh, and, and, I, and I sometimes wonder that if this happened to me today, I, 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 what would I do? All I know is that it happened to me at a time when I was so on fire by the love of God and so on fire to love others that I didn't care. I was going to love them anyways. And God was in that. And he revealed himself to me in that. And I would just hope that as I get older and more on in my faith, that I never lose what C.S. Lewis calls that first fervor, that fervor that drove me to him initially so that I might love others in the way that he does. Let's pray. Father, tough, tough passage that we're looking at here this morning, God. It, it, taken at face value, it seems to be suggesting that uh, your love has been poured into our lives through Jesus, 
that we are now to love others in the same way, the same outlandish, life-giving, grace-filled, forgiving way that Jesus has loved us, and that God, when we do that, there's a spiritual, relational benefit for us in which words like complete and live and love become not just distant hopes but close-up realities for us. And so, Father, if we're reading that right, cement this in our minds and hearts. Lord, for some of us, the crust over the years of knowing you has caused us to not be as loving as we originally were. And so, Lord, as John says, we're going to say in Revelation, bring us back to our first love. Bring us back to those days when there was nothing that was stopping us in our faith in you and our love for each other. God, as you know, the vision statement of our church is to be the kind of community of faith in which we have an unwavering trust in Jesus and an unconditional love for others. May what we've looked at today bring us ever closer to seeing that vision realized. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week on Father's Day.